Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. Hello everyone. So today I'm going to do a fairly brief episode, following on actually from last week. Um, I think I alluded to the fact that I was going to do something, I was kind of thinking in this space about well, what actually is good practice engagement and impact. Um, so um, again, for listeners who are not in the UK, um, who, uh, who are not being subjected to this research excellence framework uh, as we are here, you may want to skip this episode. Uh, but I do think that there is relevance uh, far beyond the UK uh, if we can get this right. And of course, uh, RAF uh, simply being the incentive for us to actually look at uh, what is good practice in this, uh, in this area. And uh, and so really that that is my motivation uh, all along. I've simply wanted to enable people to take a, a more empathic, uh, heartfelt approach to engagement and impact, and a more evidence based approach. That's what's uh, driven all of my work for years. Uh, and uh, and I think some of the challenges around the way in which we've incentivized this in the UK is that uh, it can become a bit of a tick box type exercise. Let's get the the the, uh, the impacts. Uh, let's get to, to cut to the chase. Get to the end. Get to something we can shine up and submit as an impact case study. Um, and uh, to an extent, uh, the, the 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 end justifies whatever means we might need to take to get there. Uh, and potentially that can include some means which are of dubious nature when it comes to the ethics. Um, and I've spoken at length in various episodes about what I see as a conflict of interests that many of us have around this exercise, where uh, this could lead to promotion, it could lead to uh, us getting funding, whether that's QR funding that we see or our institution that sees, our league rankings, etc. Um, and, uh, and yet we claim we're doing this in the public benefits. Um, well, unless we make that clear and are transparent about that, then uh, I think people are right to ask questions. Well, what's in this for you? Uh, and that's just one of many areas of, of ethical challenge. Uh, Gemma Derrick and her colleagues um, have launched their Grimpact project. They have uh, a a website. Uh, I've now submitted two of my own Grimpact uh, to this. Um, uh, one of them to accompany my uh, my ref impact case study. <laughs> um, so uh, so read my impact case study if you want to read everything that went well. Uh, but not everything not everything went according to plan. And here are some of the things that I'm less proud about. Uh, we do we don't talk about that kind of stuff enough. And there's certainly not a forum uh, to do that, um, strategically at least, <laughs> uh, in a ref impact case study if you want to get decent scores. Uh, and that's, of course, not about uh, not about hiding stuff. Um, uh, and for me, uh, these are not kind of fundamental flaws, problems. Um, uh, and I think that where you do have something that is as much a challenge uh, and a problem uh, as it is something that you want to talk about, it's as much uh, harming as it is helping people, then you need to really think very hard about whether it is ethically right to try and write up the positives, uh, ignoring the uh, ignoring the negatives. 
So uh, ref uh, effectively uh, for me as a, a way of focusing minds now that there is this focus on research culture. Uh, and what I want to try and do is um, using the vehicle of these uh, impact narratives that we now have to build in to our ref submission uh, to try and refocus attention uh, within this research in, uh, uh, culture narrative on impact culture. Uh, so great, we're doing all of this stuff around EDI, etc. Uh, in uh, in our in our research culture, but uh, we need to apply that to our engagement activities and our impact as well. And if we don't, things might go wrong. <clears throat> So this is REF 2029 now, um, we had a, a recent announcement about that, it's been put back a year. Um, uh, no new announcements around impact on that, so uh, what we're going on is the initial decisions document that was published a couple of months ago now, uh, that said that there's going to be an impact narrative worth uh, 5% uh, typically. Um, uh, out of uh, the the hundred percent, so that's um, uh, of the twenty five percent for impact. Five percent goes to this narrative. Uh, the suggestion was that there would be a, a sliding scale up to um, this representing 12.5% if you only submit one impact case study. Uh, the new announcement did suggest that that is still under review, so we'll uh, we'll see um, uh, if that happens. But we certainly know there's going to be a proportion of our score going to this, and that's at a unit of assessment scale. Uh, so each unit that submits will have to have uh, one of these narratives alongside however many impact case studies they submit. Um, and uh, as I was saying in the last episode, uh, in that narrative, we're going to have to talk, uh, A, about the engagement we're doing uh, uh, and the impact that we're doing beyond our impact case studies. But B, we are expected to talk about what uh, Research England have described as the rigour uh, of engagement, i.e. what is good practice about what we are doing. Um, and uh, drawing on what we know of uh, the impact narrative last time, I think that applies to impact as much as it does to engagement. So uh, how can we demonstrate that what we are doing both in the engagement and impact space is good practice. Now, um, uh, Research England have pointed to the National Coordinating Centre on Public Engagements principles. They've got 10 principles. I'll signpost those in the show notes. Um, really useful. I really like what they have done. Um, uh, it is worth pointing out, though, that um, their remit goes uh, across all forms of, uh, of engagement, uh, and that can include engagement that we do based on other people's research. So uh, that kind of engagement uh, would not generate impacts that would be eligible for REF. Um, and uh, our engagement uh, doesn't necessarily have to uh, be based on research at all, um, based on the, 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 the NCCPE uh, um, engagement principles. Um, and so that's great, that's uh, as it should be for an organisation with that broad remit. But within the context of REF, I think it's useful to think more specifically about engagement with research, and in particular uh, how we engage people with our own research, uh, so that's uh, that's the ref context, um, but um, but also uh, I think because of that there are some other uh, some other gaps um, in the NCCP guidance. Uh, so there's nothing around uh, the the rigor or the openness of the the research that underpins uh, our engagement and impact and for ref purposes and in fact for any purpose I would like to suggest <laughs> that uh, we are engaging on high quality research not on something which is flaky dodgy and then as a result leads to negative unintended consequences. Um, 
there is um, uh, also, um, I think, a focus on, on individual researchers, what individual researchers can do, uh, and that's great. Uh, and I think uh, I've, I've tried to build on that in what I'm going to describe um, uh, in, in, the, in the rest of the of this episode. But we do also, I think, need guidance for institutions um, and for these impact narratives, I think that's where the institutions are going to be focusing. Um, uh, we, we need to think about the structures, the processes, all of that stuff as well. And that's something that um, that I want to think about. Uh, but also around culture, um, the skills, the knowledge exchange, the kind of support that researchers need uh, from their institutions, from their peers, um, uh, to be able to engage effectively for impact. So I've drawn on the NCCP, E uh, guidance um, and I'll signpost that. Uh, I've also of course drawn on my Impact Culture book, uh, you, uh, also the peer-reviewed version of that. If you want all of the references have a look, on, uh, look at that. Um, and um, as, uh, there's also online so I'll give you I think the link to the uh, Impact Culture book website so if you scroll to the bottom of that page you'll see my Impact Culture toolkit. Lots of very practical ideas of things you can do to build a healthy impact culture. Uh, also, I've got a, a paper, uh, Reed and Rodman, uh, published uh, last year now, which is effectively about uh, EDI considerations in, in, in engagement and impact, and I've drawn on that as well. Uh, so those are my sources, if you like, uh, into the guidance. So nine things that I want to present, and I'm going to try and do that in nine minutes so I don't waste your time, uh, because you can read this in much more detail um, in, the, in, in the blog itself. So the first of, uh, of these principles is to understand your purpose and pursue impacts you find intrinsically motivating rather than allowing extrinsic incentives to drive your impact. And so at an institutional level, this is about recognizing, valuing, rewarding engagement and impact. We need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to have the right messaging around this, yes. But at the same time, this is about uh, avoiding using these rewards as incentives and putting this front and center of our culture and our approach so that we don't just encourage game-playing behaviors. Instead, I think institutions need to consider ways that they can draw researchers to impact and enable and empower them to engage on their own terms. How do you do that? Uh, ideas from my impact culture uh, toolkit. This could be peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning opportunities uh, with more engaged researchers. Uh, that could be uh, in uh, in mentoring uh, uh, kind of modes. Uh, it could be that you create a coaching program around impact. Um, some really nice examples from Staffordshire and uh, University of Leeds, um, if you want to follow up on that. Uh, it could also be impact training that we do uh, that uh, enables uh, people to, to have the skills, but also the confidence they need to pursue impact on their own terms. And within that training, the space to really think about uh, their own motives intrinsically and how coming at impact uh, from those perspectives might actually be intrinsically motivating in terms of, I don't know, curiosity, uh, challenge, creativity, things like that. 
for researchers, uh, this uh, this idea around understanding purpose and uh, and engaging with impact uh, based on our intrinsic motivations. Uh, this is uh, for us an individual task about clarifying our purpose, uh, understanding if and how engagement and impact might express important identities and values and con contribute to the meaning that we as researchers derive from our work. It is from that meaning that we ultimately derive our purpose. How do you do that? Um, uh, so as I've said, it could be training, it could be coaching that uh, empowers us to engage in ways that we feel comfortable, that are aligned with our values. Um, uh, and also this idea of making conflicts of interest uh, transparent uh, where there are rewards. Secondly, we need to understand our context so we can engage with empathy, inclusivity and sensitivity. For institutions, I think this is about extending uh, equality, diversity and inclusion, or EDI, training to engagement and impact, uh, giving researchers the capacity to better understand the cultural, cult, cult, cultural, social, geopolitical, other relevant contexts they are working in. So we stop and ask questions and think deeply before just uh, diving in. Uh, another part of this is about systematically identifying and understanding those who might be interested, influential or impacted by our research. Um, this is my 3i analysis approach, which I've described in previous episodes. Uh, third, it's about adapting engagement process. Um, uh, sorry, uh, not third. <laughs> we're, not, we're still on the second principle. Um, uh, this this kind of EDI um, uh, approach to engagement and impact is also about adapting adapting our engagement processes to the needs and to the capabilities of different groups. So we manage power dynamics explicitly. We recognise the, the 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 legitimacy of multiple perspectives uh, alongside our uh, the, the the evidence process as well um, uh, and that enables us to then give voice to different groups um, uh, empowering them um, and ensuring that there is equitable representation in our engagement and impact processes and in some cases the research itself if you're doing more co-productive work for researchers, this is about uh, building our capacity to understand the wider context in which we work, uh, learning about the diversity of different groups who might be interested in our work, influential in certain ways or impacted by what we do, either, either positively or negatively. Uh, getting the skills to do a 3 eye analysis, actually prioritising that before we dive in. Um, and then adapting uh, our research, our engagement, our impact processes to what we find from that kind of analysis to make sure that what we're doing is equitable, inclusive, empathic, and respects the needs and perspectives of multiple groups. The third of my principles then is where relevant, and there is a where relevant here, uh, to co-design our engagement and impact. A lot of people say, yeah, you have to do this. Well, actually, a lot of people, especially more pure, uh, non-applied uh, disciplines doing more public engagement work, um, uh, yeah, there's there's a limit. Sometimes it's not always appropriate, um, but uh, but yeah, institutionally, this is about helping researchers identify and connect with those who might benefit from their work as early as possible, where possible. Uh, then co-designing engagement activities that will generate impacts that will be of real value to those groups. So again, this could be about doing a three I analysis to identify the relevant groups. 
uh, based on that we're working out what might be relevant pathways to impact, we could use logic models, we could use theories of change and things like that. So we've got a sense of, yeah, these are the people and this is how we can now adapt a pathway to impact with people like that. Ideally get them to co-design what that pathway looks like. Uh, you may then institutionally co-produce events, other initiatives uh, with non-academic partners. Uh, it could be about building long-term partnerships, it could be about creating boundary organisations such as policy units or enterprise hubs and the like. Uh, and they then sit between the university in a particular sector or set of networks or groups to try and stimulate more productive interactions. Uh, for researchers, uh, this idea of, uh, of, of co-design uh, is about uh, identifying and connecting with those who might benefit from our work as early as possible. Uh, and we draw on relevant tools, so things like the 3i analysis, but also institutional support to try and uh, get the, the time and the resources to then co-design that engagement and impact early on. And of course, that's sometimes challenging, especially if we're doing this uh, as part of a propose, proposal development um, uh, process. Um, and uh, if you're doing uh, co-productive research um, or applied research uh, that affects people, yeah, have a think about whether you can build that into the research itself. Uh, and the goal is that we're then developing, uh, b b delivering benefits that are relevant to everyone, but also are adapted to, adaptive to changing needs and context. Uh, so fourth is drawing on robust and open evidence and institutionally we need to recognize and reward evidence synthesis better than we do at the moment uh, and that could be about training, it could be about resources, um, uh, it's about making sure that our findings are open access, uh, as freely accessible and understandable as possible uh, and where relevant making the data underpinning those findings open access as well. Um, uh, the, for researchers, this is about uh, avoiding making recommendations for policy or practice based on single studies. So uh, recognizing that we need to draw on evidence synthesis where possible, or at least uh, more expert judgment, uh, looking at uh, a narrative review of the literature to, uh, to base this on bodies of work where we can. The fifth point is that we need to monitor, evaluate, but also learn and be accountable. So institutions need to put systems into place to help us as researchers quickly and easily keep track of our engagement and impacts, give us training, support on how to do that evaluation work, set up systems that enable us to learn lessons, especially where things have gone wrong um, across the institution. Um, uh, and systems for where researchers can exchange knowledge and experience um, uh, from what works, what doesn't work. It could be mentoring, could be workshops, could be case studies, things like that. Uh, and ultimately, we, uh, we as researchers, they need to be uh, supported to be accountable to those that we're trying to, uh, to benefit, not just our funders and the like. Uh, so uh, we as researchers need to take responsibility for finding ways of tracking what we're doing as efficiently as possible. Uh, we need to get those skills, uh, go on those training courses and such like, um, and recognising that we need to be accountable not only to our uh, funders but uh, to those who we ultimately want to benefit from our work. 
Our sixth uh, principle here is about building skills and confidence and supporting each other in engagement and impact. So I've talked about a whole load of the things that uh, institutions can put in place, training, mentoring, coaching. Uh, ultimately, what these do, though, is that they build skills and confidence for engagement and impact. I think there needs to be a really strong ethical foundation to this kind of provision. So we draw from across all of the principles uh, so that uh, any kind of training, uh, mentoring, uh, coaching program uh, really thinks deeply uh, around, uh, around ethics, uh, around how we can create uh, nurturing, compassionate cultures that enable people to feel supported and enabled, um, that are open enough that we can have learning from failure seminars, for example. Um, and, um, and just thinking about those, those accountability mechanisms that ensure everyone has at least had basic training around ethics of engagement and impact, for example. For researchers, it's about engaging with and supporting others in our networks, in our institutions who are doing engagement and impact work, contributing towards that supportive, nurturing culture in our teams, across our institution, uh, engaging as we have time in the, 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 the stuff that gets put in place, the training, the, the mentoring, the coaching um, and such like. Um, the seventh point then is um, a principle that we consider and manage the ethics uh, and risks of engagement and impact. And this is what I was talking about in the last episode, so I won't uh, talk about this in too much depth. Um, but yeah, do we expand the remit of ethics committees? Um, uh, what is the, the, the kind of the data that we need to collect? Um, uh, yeah, what are the exceptions? Um, uh, what, yeah, what guidance do we give? What training do we give to ethics committees, to others um, who need to check what is going on um, and make sure that we have accountability built in so when things go wrong, we know who is ultimately responsible institutionally. Um, uh, and uh, as researchers, uh, we need to then be responsible and accountable to our institution. Uh, we need to take responsibility for identifying high-risk engagements and impacts, uh, even if our research is not covered by an ethics committee because there are no human um, uh, participants in the research itself. Yeah, but this could still go wrong. I need to self-identify, at least talk to someone, even if there aren't uh, formal um, processes put in place yet. Eighth out of nine, almost there, is where relevant we need to co-design our engagement and oh, no, that is not the one. We've got a mistake in the blog here. I'm going to have to um, uh, uh, correct that. Oops. Um, so what is this one about? Uh, institutions need to recognise the time, professional support, funding needed. So this is uh, about support uh, for uh, and resourcing for impact. Uh, signposting people to external resources and internal resources, considering whether we have an impact strategy. Uh, and for researchers, it's about planning our engagement and impact, uh, identifying resourcing needs as early as we can so that we can follow best practice. We've got that support. Uh, we can apply for external funding if we need to integrate this into our, um, our proposals and such like. Uh, but where we can't afford that, we can then uh, resource pool, um, uh, etc. So lots more ideas in the blog. And finally, then, it's about understanding and managing power dynamics and our own positionality. 
So for institutions, this is about ensuring that there is access to professional facilitation where possible, uh, or we're giving people training in facilitation, uh, especially where people are working with vulnerable groups or in controversial settings around their engagements or impact. I think there could also be something around uh, decolonization. We're doing this for the curriculum. Can we also do this now around engagement and impact, challenging unconscious bias, privilege, positionality, etc. And for researchers, this is about recognising the value of professional facilitation, not figuring, hey, I can chair meetings so I can chair um, uh, stuff with my non-academic partners, especially in these more controversial settings or with vulnerable groups and, uh, and uh, getting access to professional support where we can, building that into our proposals where we can't or getting training on that. Um, and as part of that, really thinking deeply about our own positionality uh, and, uh, and what that means, whether we are in fact even appropriate to facilitate those um, conversations and what we need to do to interrogate our own assumptions uh, and thinking about the, the deeper, uh, less visible power structures, power structures that ultimately uh, constrain change, um, uh, might, uh, might alter how things work, that we need to understand and be aware of and manage somehow. So uh, always useful to, uh, to to look through a blog um, and spot all of the mistakes. I, I've spotted some typos as well, so I have a task to go and do. And by the time you're listening to this, uh, that will be sorted. <laughs> but hopefully I've given you a flavour um, uh, and you can go away, read, reflect, think. I'd love to know what you thought or think of this. So at the end of the blog, I've put a link to a Google Doc where I'm collecting responses. Um, nothing yet on that, so I'd love you to be the first person to uh, respond, but that could also be just reaching out, emailing, me reaching out on social media. What do you think? Realistic or just pie in the sky, Mark? Nobody has time for this. Uh, this would never work in the real world. <laughs> uh, or no, this is so important. Uh, how can we now try and get this taken up, resourced, made possible? So uh, over to you. I'd love to know what you think. Uh, this is, I think, the last episode of the year, um, so uh, lots more planned for next year, uh, but I'm just going to say goodbye. Uh, I will be restarting at some point in January, maybe get a few episodes in the bag for a bit of flexibility before, so uh, later in January, I suspect. Uh, but in the meantime, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year if you are celebrating that, or a great holiday otherwise, and I will be back soon.